Church family, will you take your copy of God's Word and turn to page one? <laughs> we are this morning going to begin uh, what will likely be a year-long series in the first book of the Bible. We will not make it past the first verse this morning. As, I know some of you look at Genesis and you think there's 50 chapters. Ryan, you're going to retire before you finish it at the rate you go. Not once, once we get to the narrative text, it, it moves a lot faster, but there is a lot contained in Genesis 1. In a moment, we will stand and read that. I have to tell you, though, um, on March 19th, I sat down here feeling very alone. It was the first Sunday that none of you were allowed to be here. And while for the last six weeks we have gathered in two services, uh, it still felt different. And I know that there are still people watching at home this morning who are not yet ready to come back. But for the first time since March, it felt like our family was in the room again. I, <laughs> I'm glad you were here. I got to talk to families as you walked in for the first time that have not been back. There are multiple of you that this is your first time back, and we are glad you are here. Um, we even have people visiting from out of town who are special to us. Uh, uh, Michael and Mary Jane Turner are here. They're part of our, our uh, church plant in Philly, Redemption Heights. We're grateful for you guys visiting. Uh, Jacob and Amy Gonzalez are here who moved last year to D.C., um, because the Coast Guard does that to people. Um, but they are back visiting. And um, if we would have known, Amy, we would have made you sing. Um, <laughs> but just looking out and seeing faces we don't see often, and then some of you that we are used to, but you have not, it is just it is, uh, an emotionally overwhelming moment for me. So I'm glad you're here and that we can study God's Word together. Would you stand with me? As we consider the opening verse of the opening chapter of the opening book of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray together. Father, I am grateful for our family, for this local church, for how well we love and care for one another. And as we kind of recognize in a real sense, as we honor some of our graduates this morning, we, we, we know that things are still not back to normal fully. But to be in the same room as, as our church is, is wonderful. So thank you that we can be here. Help us to continue to protect one another. And would, you, would we continue to be able to do this? Let us not have to go backwards. I thank you for the men and women who are volunteering in our preschool and kids areas for the first time in a while today. Thank you for their willingness to do so, so that moms and dads can sit here under the teaching of your word. May those kids, we pray this morning, be blessed because of the love and instruction of our church. Would you help us now as we open your word, and as we consider these words to us, so familiar 
even if someone has walked in off the street, very familiar, likely to them, the opening phrase of the Bible. But let, would you guard our hearts from that familiarity, from this just being words on a page? Let us see the story of God unfold before us in what you have created and what you have said to us is true, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. This morning, as we consider these first few words in the original Hebrew text, it was seven words. I realize in our English Bibles, it's more than seven words, but I'm likely going to say these seven words uh, because they, they tell us something that is of first importance and that there. And that is this, there is one God. That one God made everything that exists. And what he made and the story that he is telling is not about us. That we so often think of what has unfolded on this planet as being the story of humanity. It is not. We are secondary characters in this story. God is the main character. This is the first line of the book of Genesis, and I'm going to try today to not only introduce the idea of this verse and the chapter in which it's contained, but also our entire series, as I, as I try to do when we embark upon new series through books of the Bible. But reading here the first line of Genesis, which really serves as the first line of the entire Bible, it got me thinking about the opening lines of famous books. Because some books are best known by how they open. So let me read some to you. And let's see if we can know what these books are without me telling you. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It's a tale of two cities by Charles Dickens. He, in this opening line, and by the way, it continues. That, there's not a period there after the worst of times. It does continue. He, but Dickens introduces this external conflict, this paradigm that he is introducing in London and uh, in the midst of pre-French um, Revolution, that, that things were at simultaneously great and terrible. Also Dickens here. Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. That's David Copperfield. Many think it, as, as much of an autobiography of Dickens, at least in theme, of anything he wrote. It introduces an internal conflict that the character wonders, is he truly a hero or not? Here's one that's a little more modern. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were, perf- that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. That's from the first Harry Potter book. It's a great first line because it introduces an idea that there is such a thing as normal. And then she writes seven additional, or that book and six additional books describing that which is completely abnormal. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick, Herman Melville. 
introduces not the main character, but a narrator, a secondary character in the story telling someone else's account. Well, Genesis 1, 1 is equally famous, if not, we should say, historically speaking, more so. Probably the most famous line in the beginning of any book ever written. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in its first line, Genesis 1-1 announces the main character and his definitive action. Genesis 1-1 is telling us what creation is about. Now, we will deal with the act of creation next week. As the rest of Genesis, and the rest of Genesis one unfolds it for us, but to gloss over this first sentence and to dive right into what God did in His creating act without considering why He did it would be a mistake. And that is the question I believe that Genesis one one answers for us. If we will explore these seven words in detail, here is what we will understand, that Genesis 1-1 is introducing to us the main character of the entire story. And to miss this is to miss why we exist, is to miss all of why everything exists, and it is to miss why the Bible and the book of Genesis and the 65 other books that make up the Old and New Testament exist. Genesis 1 is the story of creation, and creation tells us the story of God. God is the main character of creation. So who is this God that Genesis 1-1 speaks of? Do you, know that, do you notice that there is a presupposition here in the text? And that presupposition is that God exists as we study these 50 chapters of Genesis, I am going to attribute the authorship of Genesis to Moses, writing during the time of the Exodus. And you'll see this in much more detail next week, that I think we need to consider what Moses has to write to Israel in light of how they would have read it. And that's really going to mean something next week as we look at the first six days of creation that we, we need to read this through ancient Israel's eyes as they have escaped captivity in Egypt and are moving towards the promised land. And Moses, their leader, writes to them. But Moses assumes a fact that is, not, is no longer assumed in our culture. And that is that a God exists. We now live in a post-religious culture. This is not, we do not live in a religious or even a Christian culture any longer. We have departed where many people moving towards most in the world that we live in do not believe that God exists. But Genesis 1 begins with the idea that God exists and that people believe that he does. Moses does not make an argument for the existence of God. He just plainly states the fact that God was there. That in the beginning, God existed. 
There are a collection of Psalms. We just spent six weeks in the Psalms in between our series in Ephesians and Genesis. And there's a collection of Psalms uh, really kind of towards the middle um, that, that are attributed to Moses and to the time of the Exodus. And one of them is Psalm 90. And in the second verse of Psalm 90, we read, Before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This God that is introduced in Genesis 1-1 is an eternal God. He has eternally existed. He is not impacted by time as we are. We are finite beings in our physical bodies all have a beginning. Our spiritual bodies also have a beginning. And then the Bible tells us that our physical bodies will one day decay and be put into the earth and our spiritual bodies will go to a place, if we are Christians, a place where God is, because to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. For those who are uh, not in Christ, they will go to a, a place where they await torment, right? But then our physical bodies will one day be raised again, but we are still not eternal in nature because we have a beginning, it is God alone who has no beginning. The first three words there is really just one word in the Hebrew. It's later translated into the Greek and the Greek tra transliterated into Latin and ultimately into English, which is where we get the word Genesis from. Genesis means origins. It's telling us the story of how all that we see began, but there is something that had existed eternally before all that we see, and he is God. Before the earth was formed, God was everlasting to everlasting, the Alpha and the Omega. The word for God in Genesis 1-1 is the most common used word in the Old Testament for God. It is the word Elohim. But later, in Genesis 2-4, we're going to be introduced to another name for God, a more personal name. In Genesis 2-4, which we will get to in a few weeks, we read this. There are, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the days that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You'll notice there that the, these two words are pushed together, Lord God. That second, the one that is most often translated God in the Old Testament, is that Elohim, speaking of the God who created everything. The word translated Lord in our English Bibles comes from the Hebrew word, which we pronounce as Yahweh, the personal name of God, which is derived from the Hebrew word for to be, to exist. It's a, it's a playoff of the word that God introduced himself in Exodus 3 to Moses from the burning bush when Moses says, who should I tell them is sending me? And God said, I am that I am. I am the one that exists, that even in the personal name of God sits this very idea that from everlasting to everlasting, God has been and will ever be. And this God who is the main character of creation is the one true eternal God of the scriptures. And because of the scriptures, we know more about him. 
and he progresses, progressively reveals himself. And we're going to see that in Genesis, that uh, from one narrative account to the next, God reveals a little more of his nature and a little more of who he is and how man is, can be right with him. And then that progresses through the Old Testament until we get to the New Testament. And one of the first books of the New Testament that's contained in the four gospels, the four accounts of Jesus is the gospel of John. And John, the disciple of Jesus, looking back on the life of Jesus, borrows language from Genesis 1 when he introduces this new story about God. And he says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Here's what John is telling us to be true about Jesus, that Jesus is God, that Jesus has always been God. And you say, wait, I don't see Jesus in those first three words. He is the word. That is the word that John uses to describe Jesus, the word. Jesus has and will always be God. So when we read Genesis 1, and this is why John borrows that language, because John wants the new Testament church to understand something clearly. And that is that the God that is described in Genesis 1-1 is the same God that is described in John 1-1. We as the Christian church have not created something new. It's not like 2,000 years ago, a group of people got together and said, hmm, this, this, you know, Jewish religion was nice and all, but it's not really worked out for us. So let's sit around and think about ways that we can modify it, make it better. People have been trying to do that with religion forever. And here's what people always do. Anytime we try to make religion better, we tend to make it worse. All right. But that's not what Christianity did. Christianity didn't sit around in a room and say, hey, how can we make this Judaism better Christianity just explained more to us about God himself because God revealed himself to us in a more clear way, in the most clear way possible through Jesus. But know this, when we read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that presupposed God that exists in Genesis 1-1 is the God that we gathered to worship today. It is the God who progressively revealed himself through the Old Testament, who showed himself to us in bodily form in Jesus Christ, and who will reign for all eternity. There has always and only existed one God. Just we have learned more about him as time progressed and as he revealed himself to us. It's not as if there is a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. There is one God who has always been and will always be. And his creation, you and I, this earth upon which we make our home, this solar system in which our world resides, this galaxy and universe all of it is his story. I, we looked last week at Psalm 8 and we said that this kind of was a forward, right? That it was maybe the prelude to our series in Genesis. And we talked about how when we go out and we look at the night sky, it should cry to us, there is a God. And that is what creation does. 
It should be impossible for us to look at God's created order and think that this happened by accident. This did not happen by accident. It happened because God made it happen. And God made it happen to tell us about him. Now, Romans 1 both affirms this truth, but then introduces another truth that is vitally important for us. The Apostle Paul writes, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So here's the idea that Paul introduces in Romans chapter 1. And that is that because God has revealed certain things about himself to us in his creation, we are all without excuse. So we can know that God exists because we exist. The old philosophical phrase, I think, therefore I am, right? We would say it more like this, I am. I exist, therefore, because this exists, I can know that God exists. I can look at the order in, that we're going to see next week in, in the rest of Genesis 1. I can look at that order and the way that God made things and know that there is, get this, a God. And by knowing that there is a God... That a creative God who rules and reigns over everything exists. Paul says we are then without excuse. Because creation is enough to tell a person that there is a God. Genesis 1.1 is enough to tell a person that there is God. But there is a reason that this Bible is long. There's a reason for the progressive revelation of God because Genesis 1-1 and what it tells us about God is not enough to make us right with God. It is enough to make us without excuse, which is why we believe in the mission of God, of the church, to declare the glory of God through his gospel and see people repent of their sins and come to faith in Christ because we believe that every person on this planet is without excuse because creation has told them that there is a God. But we need more. And that is why the Bible doesn't consist just of seven words in one verse, but, but a 50-chapter introduction book that leads to 65 other books that tell us who God is and how we can be right with the one who is telling his story to us. So God is the main character of creation, but he is also the main character of the story of redemption told from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis 1-1 isn't just the opening of the creation account. It's the first line of the book of Genesis and the first line of the whole Bible. And the way that we so often read the Bible, we read the Bible in such a way that we convince ourselves that it is somehow about us. And here's what Genesis 1-1 does. It reminds us, it introduces this idea to us that we should never let go. And that is from beginning to end, this book is not about me. Again, I was thinking about opening lines of books this week as I was preparing the sermon and 
I began thinking not of the opening line of secular books, some of those that we quoted earlier, but also opening lines of Christian books. And there are two Christian books that I think outside of the Bible have the best opening lines. Now, these books um, could not be any more different, right? One of them about 15 years ago was the most popular Christian book of a generation, It's in the top 10 of selling Christian books of all time. Just about every church that I know about 15 years ago did a whole study, and they put signs up everywhere. Some of you, if you've been around church a long time, you already know what I'm thinking of. Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. Now, The Purpose Driven Life has some interesting things that it can teach us, okay? But if you never go past The Purpose Driven Life, you've stayed fairly shallow. It, It is a very accessible book. You could hand this book to anybody, And they could kind of understand and digest. There's not a lot of deep discipleship that happens in there. But it has one of the best opening lines of any book, of any Christian book. He very simply begins, it's not about you. That book was good for for no other reason than it began by telling people, this is not about you. This story that God is telling in creation and the story that God tells us in his scripture from Genesis to Revelation is not about you. Now, the other, deep and theological, will take you some time to work through. It is probably one of my top three or so favorite Christian books. I quote from it in here. I've quoted probably half a dozen times in sermons over the years from Let the Nations Be Glad. John Piper writes, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. Now, we take these two ideas together. It's not about you and missions exist because worship does not. And they're both saying the same exact thing. That everything that is happening in our world, in creation, and everything contained within the word of God is not about you. And it's not about others. It's not about people. It's about God. That he is the main character. Paul, in his first letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 8, verse 6, writes, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul affirms this truth. It's not about you. And it's not about your family. And it's not about other people. It is all about God. Now, Genesis is it's really going to be a fun series for us, as uh, particularly once we move past creation, we're going to get to what I think is best described as hero accounts, that heroes rise and they, they fall. These, these, these larger-than-life people come on the scene, and some of them stay for a while, and some of them don't. And some of these stories are going to be familiar to us because if you grew up in church, maybe you were taught these things as a young child, and then uh, others are going to be somewhat unfamiliar to us because some of these stories make some of our heroes look bad, and so we don't 
talk about them so much. You know, for instance, the story Noah. We always want to talk about Noah on the ark. We don't want to talk about what happened with Noah after the ark, okay? And if you don't know, we're, we're going to get there, all right? And so our heroes don't always look great, but we think about Genesis, and in many cases, many of the books of the Old Testament is these great hero stories. But because these, of these, the, the way that these stories sometimes read, particularly out of context, when, when we don't consider them in light of all that is happening in Genesis, but we just consider the story, we so often then turn them into morality tales where we ask a question like, well, what did this person do? And if it's good, then we seek to copy it. And le- or if it's bad, then we seek to learn from it and be warned from it as if all God is interested in is our action. And so we read things like Abraham being called by God to go from Ur to a land that God would show him in Genesis 12. And we're like, oh, then when God reveals something to me, I need to do it. Like, if you think that's the point of Genesis 12, you've missed the whole point of it, right? Or Joseph in the, in the house of, of Potiphar, when this woman, his wife, comes on to him, right? And what does he do? He leaves his cloak behind and he flees. And if you think the point of that story is that we need to flee temptation, that's a great idea, but you've missed the point. So when we move from Adam to Cain and Abel to Noah to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers, they are not the main characters of these stories. God is, that all of this exists for him. Don't miss the point. Over this next year, as we take these stories individually and we think about what's happening in them, our primary question is going to be not what are these men and women doing. Our question is going to be what is God doing? Because that's the point. He is revealing himself to us, not only in creation, but his word Now again, Genesis 1-1, it's not just the beginning of one book, it's the beginning of the book, the beginning of the Bible. And so as we progress, we recognize that God continually reveals himself through his word, ultimately culminating in, back in John 1, Jesus. When John 1-14 tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. See, we can know God because God came to us. And God has revealed himself to us in his word. And and every time we come to the word of God, it shouldn't be that we come to God's word looking for some little moral tweak to our life. It should be that we come to the word of God asking this question, oh God, what have you done? How are you showing yourself and your character to us? And how does that character find its yes in Jesus? How is it personified most fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Because we have the benefit of hindsight. As New Testament Christians, we get to look on the closed canon of God, the full revelation of God in his word to us, and ask, what has God said We don't have to worry that God's going to reveal something else because he is not. He has revealed everything to us that we need to know. And so God reveals himself to us as the main character of this entire story. Culminating in this, that there is a day that is coming. The end of time as we know it. 
when creation is made new and millions upon millions stand before the throne. And Revelation 4 gives us one of the pictures of this. And John in Revelation writes, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thank him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and and by your will they exist and were created. That at the end, eternally, we will worship God. That is the end result of this story that God is telling. Eternal worship of the only one who deserves it. God, creator of the ends of the earth, who has revealed himself to us, not only in what we see, but in what we read through his word. If only we will ask the right question. What is God telling us about himself? So what? God, as the only eternal creator who actively works to bring about his will, is the foundation of our salvation. Know this, and this is true about many great works of literature. If you miss the beginning, you've missed the entire thing. I I can't stand to go into a movie late because there's so much important in the first minute or two of a movie, right? And movies are the new books. Nobody reads books anymore. I read books, but you know, people, movies are kind of our culture's books now. And if you miss the beginning, then you kind of miss what's happening in the rest of the thing. So know this, that if you don't understand what's happening in these seven words of Genesis 1-1, you're going to miss everything else that God is the only eternal creator and he is working in creation and revealing himself to us. And that belief is the very foundation upon which our salvation is built. There there are two uh, parts in Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet that speaks to this idea for us. And this is where I'd like us to end today. The first is Isaiah 45, 18, where we read, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, That's actually in parentheses that that there's this exclamation just so the hearers can understand. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Genesis 1.1 declares to us what the prophet Isaiah says to be true in Isaiah 45 and that there is only one God. I realize this makes us unpopular in our present culture, but know this, this church stands on this truth that there is one God. Our world has become increasingly so pluralistic. Now this has been true since the beginning, well, since the fall, this has been true, that people have sought God in various forms, but none of those forms were God. That the one true God is the God of the Bible. The one true God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is God and there is no other. In the next chapter of Isaiah, in Isaiah 46, God says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. 
I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Know this, right now in this moment, God is telling a story. But here's what we must affirm, that the story that God is actively telling in creation right now Speaking to us through his word is a story that God wrote before any of this existed. That before the moment of in the beginning, God not only existed, but the will and plan and counsel of God, his purposes also existed and he will accomplish them. We are part of this story. We are not the main characters, but we are a part of it. His purpose includes the redemption of his people, the church of God. And God, as the creator who is telling this story, is the foundation upon which our very salvation into his family is built. So often Jesus in the New Testament is described as the cornerstone. But you know that beneath a cornerstone, there's a foundation a solid surface upon which everything else is built. And this, Genesis 1-1, is that solid surface. Without one true living God who is the creator of the ends of the earth, there is no salvation for the church. Without this one simple truth, we are all lost and guessing on our own, trying as we might to get to God. So I would encourage you today, Embrace this truth. Recognize it for what it is. That God, through creation and through his word, is telling a story to us. And we can perceive it. We can know it. And its end result is worship. Its end result is glory for him by those who are saved through it. So if you're here today and you say, I'm not right with God, I I believe there is a God, but I don't know how to get to him. Know this, you get to him through Jesus Christ alone, that God will accomplish his purpose in your life if you will but turn to him, recognizing your sin. He will bring you from darkness into light to steal from the next few verses in Genesis 1. God will bring you from that eternal darkness into his light For the church, our response is to remember that this is true. As so much in our world will seek to attack this very foundational truth, we stand firm in this, that there is but one God. And he has revealed himself to us in his world and in his word. And it is our responsibility then to know him as he has revealed himself to us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you made everything, but that you did not make it and walk away from it, that you made it and then revealed who you are to us through your inspired word, that it was preserved for us so that we could not only know that God exists through creation, but that we can know that the God of the Bible exists and we can know how to be right with him. Help us as we embark upon this series to to recognize that this is not about us, but it is about you. Father, I pray for the person listening here today or watching with us online who would say, I 
I'm not sure that I've ever believed that in that way, but I believe it today. Would you draw them to salvation? Lead them to repentance, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.